Amen. Amen. You know, every time I, I preach, uh, this really goes, I think, without exception. Every time I, I, I'm scheduled to preach, you know, that, that week leading up to the sermon and preparation, I, I feel spiritual opposition, distractions, various things come in my life during that week. And so when I realized that I would be preaching on spiritual warfare for a couple of weeks, I got all the more uh, nervous about what might come in my life uh, as, uh, as we get ready to look at this next section of Ephesians. So I'm going to ask you just to pray for me now and through this week, because we're going to be spending a couple of weeks talking about spiritual warfare and the armor of God. Please pray for me uh, that God would equip and strengthen me to in turn equip you as I preach to you the Word of God and, and uh, expound to you what God is saying. And let's pray for ourselves as a congregation over these next couple of weeks uh, as we think about spiritual warfare. Let's pray uh, that we would stand strong and stand firm as Paul talks about here and, uh, and that we would be uh, victors in spiritual warfare. Uh, <clears throat> so we've been going through the book of Ephesians for months now and uh, and this, this journey through Ephesians has been truly an amazing, incredible, delightful, inspiring experience for me. It's been a wonderful learning experience. I've learned a lot just sitting and listening to, to Steve preach the Word to us. I've learned myself as I've sat down and prepared for sermons. It's been a wonderful experience. And today, we begin the final leg through Ephesians. We're almost done, and, and now we come to one of the most famous sections in the whole Bible, this classic section that deals with the armor of God and spiritual warfare. And often when we look at this scripture, uh, often the scripture is looked at uh, completely isolated from its context. It's looked at often as something that is separate. In fact, in the past, not in this church, but in the past, I've been guilty of preaching and teaching on this text complete, and, and, and I completely isolated from the rest of the book of Ephesians. Just kind of randomly jumped in in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's talk about spiritual warfare. And yet we need to remember that this section of the armor of God is part of a larger letter from Paul. Uh, we've discussed this on previous Sundays, that Paul has a purpose and a direction for his arguments throughout the book of Ephesians. There's a, there's a flow there. Paul's not giving us a letter that's full of just a bunch of random, uh, unconnected ideas and arguments. He's not just throwing at us a bunch of miscellaneous tips and instructions for life. There's an overarching theme to Ephesians, and this section dealing with the armor of God flows from that theme and is connected to the themes that, that we see in this book. So before we dive into Paul's section on spiritual warfare, let's remember where we've been so far in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Paul in Ephesians has described to us God's glorious redemptive plan. You were part of that plan. I'm part of that plan. Harbin's Community Baptist Church is a part of that plan. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that before the foundation of the world, God chose to create a people for himself. Before you and I were even on this planet, God chose to adopt us into his family. Now, while Ephesians 1 explains what he chose to do, Ephesians 2 gives us some nuts and bolts details regarding how God actually 
did it. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that God took wicked sinners like you and like me, uh, sinners with dead, cold, callous hearts, insensitive to the things of God, slaves to the devil, deserving hell. He took us, and what did he do? He breathed life into our dead spirits and made us alive to God, and we were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, and we were saved and transformed, and now now a people who were once among the sons of disobedience are now changed and transformed and are now to do good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. Now, often our view of salvation or redemption stops there, doesn't it? We're lost, we're on our way, we were on our way to hell, God found us, He saved us, and we're on our way to heaven, period. That's often where our theology of salvation and redemption stops, but God doesn't But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, shows us that God is not just interested in creating a new person. God is interested, rather, in creating a new people, a new society, a new community. So Paul then goes on in Ephesians and explains how God, through the gospel, is not just reconciling man to God, but God is also reconciling man to man. God is taking people who under normal circumstances would never have anything to do with each other, people who would naturally be hating one another and at one another's throats, Jews and Gentiles, and God through the gospel takes these two groups and makes them into one. And so now everyone who is in Christ, regardless of their background, regardless of their ethnicity and former prejudices and former grudges, these people are now part of one family. They're one group or one tribe, if you will. And and that's to be a, a foretaste of the glory in the next age. Paul then moves on in chapters 4 and Five in the beginning of chapter 6 to exhort us to live lives that are worthy of that calling. So if Ephesians 1 through 3 is really, really true, if these things really did happen, if we've really been saved by God and have been called to be part of God's household, then we ought to walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. We need to live up to that calling and live differently than the world does, to live distinctively as the called out ones in the world. That's what the church means, ecclesia, called out ones. This new way of life that God calls the church to affects everything. It affects how members of the church relate and interact with one another. It affects how husbands and wives treat one another how parents and children act towards one another, even how slaves and masters treat one another, as we, as we looked at last week. The gospel radically transforms all of our relationships as the church grows more and more and more into, into Christ-likeness. More and more, our walk as a community of faith is supposed to image God our Father. This is why Paul talks like he does in Ephesians 4.24, where he exhorts us to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Here Paul is using language that's reminiscent of Genesis 2, where God created Adam and Eve in the likeness of God, an image and a likeness that was warped and perverted due to sin. But here in Ephesians 4, Paul reminds us that we in the church have been recreated and that that image of God now is being restored in us. 
Likewise, you have Paul telling the Ephesian church in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, just as children often take on the mannerisms and the characteristics of their earthly fathers, now we in this new household, in this new family, should begin to image forth and display the characteristics of our Father in heaven. We are to become more and more like our Father, more and more like God. Along those lines, you have Paul telling husbands in Ephesians 5.25, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here we see that redeemed husbands in the church are meant to point to and image Jesus in the loving, self-sacrificial way that they treat their wives. And it just goes on and on and on through Ephesians. There's a pattern here. And I, I was amazed as I was preparing this message, the longer that I looked at Ephesians, and I, I was looking through it several times this week, just pouring over the pages, and I'm seeing this pattern come up over and over again, that the plainer and plainer it became to me that one of Paul's chief emphasis in this book is how the church, how the people of God exist For the purpose of exalting God, glorifying God, through being recipients of His grace and mercy, and and also exalted through how the members of the church live out their lives in such a way that puts God on display and images Him to the world. But not only to the world. We see in Ephesians 3, verse 10, that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you notice that phrase, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? It's the exact type of terminology that Paul uses in Ephesians 6, what Steve just read to us. And in Ephesians 3, Paul tells us that God is using the church to demonstrate and reveal and display his manifold wisdom to the angelic powers. Every time the church is held up by God before Satan, the devil and all the other wicked rulers and authorities are reminded of the manifold wisdom of God. And they cannot stand it. You need to understand this morning why the demonic powers are at war with you. The wicked powers and principalities are not, are, are not, are at, they're at war with you, not because of what you've done, but because of who you are and what you are becoming. It's not simply that Satan wants to break up unity in the church because the devil is mischievous. It's not just that Satan will tempt the church to not speak the truth and love to one another because he thinks that lying is fun. And it's not, it's not a matter of the devil being unromantic, and that's why he wants to kill your marriage. The reason why the demonic powers are coming after us with such intensity and force is because they hate Jesus Christ. God's plan is to take you... This, this church, this new society, this new family that Paul's telling us about in Ephesians and conform her more and more and more into the image of the one that the devil hates so much. So when you speak the truth in love, as Paul exhorts us to do in Ephesians, what are you doing? 
you are mirroring God, who is a God of truth. And when, and when Satan sees that, that image in the mirror, that image of God in the, in the mirror, he wants to break the mirror and smash it into a million pieces. When the church is a united community, and it images the community within the Trinity, within the Godhead, which has perfect unity in the midst of diversity. And when you, Christian husband, are moving towards your, your wife in love, when you're, when you're loving her the way God wants you to love her, what are you doing? You're not just being nice. You are mirroring Jesus Christ and his love for the church, and that is why the demonic powers want to tear down your marriage. The last thing the devil wants to see are millions and millions and millions of mirrors all over the world reflecting God everywhere. Can you imagine how torturous that would be for the devil? You think about how much he hates God, and he's just, and there's just mirrors everywhere that are reflecting God's image. He wants to smash as many of those mirrors as he can. If Satan can trip us up, if he can sow discord in the church, if he can lead people in the church to speak unwholesome words to one another, to tear one another down, if he can lead husbands to be harsh and dominating or sinfully passive towards their wives, if he can lead wives to disrespect their husbands and buck against their leadership, if the devil can undermine uh, our application of all of the exhortations that we've been reading about in Ephesians 4 through 6, then we image forth a lying and perverted picture of Jesus, and the devil loves that. It's exactly why, after Paul gives us all these exhortations about what we as a church community should look like, what we as husbands and wives and moms and dads and kids should look like, Paul then immediately tells us, that there will be demonic opposition, so we better suit up for battle. Husbands, there's a reason why it's so hard for you to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Wives, there's a reason why you feel this resistance to submitting to your husband's leadership and respecting him. Fathers, there's a reason that every time you recommit yourself to be a godly dad to your children, it feels like you're running uphill. Children, there's a reason why you struggle in obeying your your dad and your mom, part of that reason is due to your own sinful tendencies. But part of it is due to the fact that there are invisible, there's an invisible external resistance to you becoming everything that God wants you to be. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Now this is an amazing statement when you consider who is writing this. Paul has been persecuted. He has been hounded uh, from town to town. He's got people chasing him. He's got people trying to kill him. He's got people that he, he's, he's been, he was stoned nearly to death, almost, almost murdered by stoning. Uh, he's dealing with this, this human opposition all the time, and, and even as he is writing the book of Ephesians, he's probably chained to a Roman officer. And so, how can you say, Paul, that our battle is not against flesh and blood? Or take it, or take it out of the realm of persecution. Uh, Paul just got done writing about life in the church, life in the home. 
how people in the church should treat one another, how husbands and wives and parents and children should interact. Sometimes those flesh and blood relationships are a real battle, aren't they? Sometimes can't our very homes feel like a battlefield? Maybe we feel like we are at war with our kids. Maybe kids, you feel like you are at war with your parents. Maybe husbands, you feel like your marriage is a real battle zone, a real minefield. Maybe wives, you feel like there's just constant conflict with your husbands. And you're thinking, yeah, that stuff you wrote in Ephesians 5, Paul, about loving, mutually submissive, harmonious marriages, about this great relationship between parents and children in Ephesians 6. That all looks great on paper, but it ain't happening in my life, Paul, and it's a real flesh and blood struggle. There's a flesh and blood person I see in my house every day that's making life difficult for me right now. I don't think that Paul is denying real conflict and struggles in flesh and blood relationships. I think if anyone understood those sorts of things, it would be Paul. But I think Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is revealing to us that even as we may be going through conflict with a flesh and blood person, there is another deadlier battle that is being waged at the same time. So, if you are in, say, conflict with your wife you need to recognize that there is another struggle going on behind the scenes and that if you are not armored up, you will lose the battle. Here's a, here's a great example from the Bible about how two simultaneous conflicts are going on and, and a lack of vigilance regarding the invisible conflict opens us up to being beat by the devil. It's in the same book. It's in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Be angry... And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Here this speaks of some sort of human conflict and it speaks of the need to reconcile that same day. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. But behind the scenes, there is a spiritual war being waged because Paul warns us that if we allow anger to consume us, if we do not deal with this in a godly way, if it carries over to the next day, we give an opportunity to the devil. Some of you in this room struggle with anger. You need to recognize that beyond the the flesh and blood person or the flesh and blood situation that you are angry with and struggling with, you've got to recognize that there is another battle going on behind the scenes. And if you don't realize that, if you don't fight the spiritual battle, if you're not wearing the whole armor of God, you will give the devil an opportunity or a foothold, as some translations say. That word foothold is a military term, and that takes us back to the military imagery In Ephesians chapter 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So ultimately, we as the church must realize where the true battle lies. The true battle is a spiritual battle against Satan and his demons. Now that can seem very, very intimidating That can seem, in one sense, very, very scary because a human is no match for an angel. Angels are stronger. Angels are smarter. Angels are more powerful. 
even if you were to witness the manifestation of a good angel, a benign angel, it would terrify you. Imagine being confronted by an evil angel and all of its terrible might. Imagine knowing that it was your enemy and out to destroy you. That would be a little unnerving, don't you think? The devil is not some little man in red pajamas with a little pitchfork. You know, the little cartoon images that we see. Or, you know, the, the cartoons where you've got like the, 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 the good little spiritual being on one side and the other little guy, the bad guy on the other shoulder, and they're kind of both arguing. Kind of that comic depiction of the devil. Now, I think the devil would rather have people see him as a silly cartoon character. I think, that, I think that he likes that. When an enemy is misunderstood or underestimated, that gives the enemy a tactical advantage in warfare. The Bible, though, gives us a different picture of the devil, and he's not a little man in red pajamas, a little jumpsuit, and a, and a pitch, pitchfork. The devil is a, a terrible cosmic being of great power. He's described in the Bible as a ravaging lion seeking someone to devour. In Revelation, Revelation 12, he is depicted as a giant dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. And the horns and the crowns represent immense power and authority. The Bible wants us to have a realistic and sober picture about who our enemy really is. To speak casually or flippantly about the devil is not a characteristic of the people of God. It's actually a characteristic of false teachers. There's an interesting passage in Jude where Jude is writing against false teachers and he's listing their traits. And one of them, one of the traits is a casual attitude towards the wicked powers and principalities. Very interesting, in Jude verses 8 and 9, it says, talking about these false teachers, it says, these people also defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, in this context, the glorious ones is not a good thing. The glorious ones, he's talking about the evil powers. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Or, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, also talking about false teachers. Peter says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So we see both in 2 Peter and in Jude, the good angels have a sober-minded attitude towards the evil angels. They're not cavalier. They're not flippant. They're not dismissive. They're not making jokes about it. They're not drawing little sketches of, of little red men in pajamas. They're not doing any of those sorts of things. Even Michael the chief of all the angels and the chief angelic foe of the devil, even he, according to Jude, was not presumptuous in his dealings with the devil. He did not rebuke the devil. Now, you think if anybody could rebuke the devil, it would be Michael, the greatest of all the angels. But even Michael steps back and says, the Lord, the Lord rebuke you. 
The Gospel of Mark gives us a glimpse of the malevolent power of these beings and their hatred. In chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus meets a demon-possessed man. Mark chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, if you want to turn there. It says, When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man, energized by the power of wicked angels, was so strong that he could not even be bound by chains. Nobody could restrain him. And you can see the hatred that these demons have towards this man made in God's image. Even though this man was not saved, he was still in God's image, and the demons hate him because of it, and they cause this man to hurt himself, even to cut himself with stones. Or you have another, another incident in Acts chapter 19 that talks about Paul's ministry, and Paul is doing signs and wonders, and he's casting out demons, and we're introduced to some Jewish exorcists who want to get in on the Acts. This is Acts 19, verses 14 through 16. It says, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, trying to cast out demons. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, who are you? And the man whom was the... And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Not only did this demon-possessed man whip up on seven guys, but he tore off all their clothes and they're running out of the house naked. Now, you know where this, this event took place? In Ephesus. It took place in the city of Ephesus. So the immediate readers of the book of Ephesians, they, they knew about this event. In fact, Acts tells us that everybody in the city knew about it. Acts 19.17, it says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. So think about this. The congregation in Ephesus is reading Ephesians 6. Probably the letter was read to them. It was, it was a letter that was meant to be read to the entire congregation. And, and as they're coming to this part of the letter, talking about who the real enemy is, I'm sure some of them thought about the seven sons of Sceva and, and how one demon-empowered man was able to co completely and easily whip seven grown men. And, and some of these Ephesians, Ephesian Christians may well have begun to get nervous about this. You mean, Paul, that I'm wrestling against those kinds of enemies? You kidding me? I can't take those things on on my own. And this is exactly why Paul says in verse 10 of Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We are to be strong, but not just strong. We are to be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. There is no way that we could take on the powers of darkness by ourselves. Our strength comes from God Himself. Only then can we stand in the battle. And just like it is a mistake to underestimate the devil and be casual and flippant towards him 
it is an equally it is an equal mistake to overestimate the devil and make more of him than we ought to. Okay, both underestimating and overestimating the enemy are tactical mistakes in battle. And we need to recognize that although we are puny compared to the devil, the devil is pathetic compared to God. The devil and God are not equal. And there are many who have that, that the kind of notion that the devil and God are, are opposing each other with equal strength. Kind of like you have a good God and you have a bad God and they've been fighting forever and they will continue to fight forever and ever. And sometimes the good God gains the upper hand and sometimes the evil God gains the upper hand and kind of goes back and forth. That kind of idea has more in common with Eastern religion and Eastern mysticism than it does with biblical Christianity. I think one of the best examples where we see a contrast between the devil's power and God's superior power is in the book of Job. Remember Job? A man who is holy and righteous, a follower of God. Here's a man who, like the church today, is glorifying God through imaging him and being a a living testimony of God's kindness and graciousness. And just like Satan is going after the church for those reasons, he went after Job. He said, let me make life miserable for Job, God, and he'll curse you. And God said, go right ahead. But here are the boundaries. Here are the things you can do. Here are the things you cannot do. And the devil went out and wreaked havoc on Job's life. But my point is that the devil didn't have the freedom to do anything that he wanted to do. Every single thing that he did to Job, he had to get permission from God to do it. He only could do those things because God gave him permission. Do you see the significance of that? If the devil were equal to God, why does he need to get permission from God? Why can't the devil just do whatever he wants to do? The devil can't do whatever he wants to do because somebody stronger is restraining him. The devil is no match for God. Unless you get fearful when you contemplate the warfare that is coming against you, we need to remember that. God could extinguish the devil's life in a millisecond. All he have to do is just say the word, die! And the devil would be immediately annihilated. And the only reason God lets the devil live is because the devil serves the purposes of God. So what about those seven sons of Sceva who got beat up by that demon-possessed man? Well, they weren't standing in the strength of the Lord. They didn't even know the Lord. Paul, on the other hand, knew the Lord. What about that scary demon-possessed man who lived in the tombs and was cutting himself? What, what did those demons do when they saw Jesus? Mark chapter 5, 6, and 7 tells us. And when he saw Jesus from afar... He ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. These demons fall before Jesus, and they're cowering in fear. They're begging Christ not to torment them. All of a sudden, these strong powerful, intimidating rulers and authorities are reduced to cowering 
quaking, terrified, pathetic beings pleading for their very lives. And Jesus hadn't even done anything yet. He just showed up, and they freak out. But Jesus does do something. He sends the demons out of the man, and the demons have no choice but to obey the Lord. And how about that terrifying dragon in Revelation? Revelation 12, verses 7 through 10 says this, Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Praise God. The strength of the Lord prevails over the devil and his demons every time. And we need to realize that we are united to Jesus. This same Jesus that caused terror in demons. This same Jesus that Paul says in Ephesians 1, God seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. The all things under the feet of Jesus includes the wicked powers and principalities. Jesus has total authority over these things. This same Jesus lives in you, and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God's superiority and mastery over the devil is demonstrated again and again and again throughout the Bible. God always wins, and it must be so frustrating to be the devil. It must be so frustrating. It doesn't matter what he does. It doesn't matter whether he turns to the left hand or to the right, whether he does this or that, whether the devil plays this card or that card, everything that Satan does contributes to his own defeat and humiliation and serves the overarching purposes of God. This is clearly seen in passages like Romans 8, 28 through 30, where Paul says that God works all things together for the good of his people. And that ultimate good is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if that's true, that God works all things for our good to, to that end, then even the attacks of Satan and even our temporary defeats as believers are among the things that God uses to work towards our good. So even when we feel like Satan has struck a blow against us, God turns that thing around and even uses that towards our ultimate good of being conformed to Christ's image, which is why Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, what then shall we say of these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? This is why we have no need to fear the devil in the battle. He who began a good work in you will complete it, and even the attacks of Satan will be used by God to accomplish that end. When you are standing in the Lord's strength, you're invincible. Not because of you, but because of him. The ultimate example of the devil's complete impotence before the Lord is the betrayal of Jesus. The Bible says that Satan entered into Judas and led Judas to betray Jesus. And, and yet, as the devil is lashing out at Jesus, what's happening? 
The devil is, under the sovereignty of God, setting into motion a chain of events that leads to his own defeat because the betrayal of Judas leads to the cross, and the cross is the place where the serpent's head is crushed by the seed of the woman. Now, if this is true, if, if the dragon has been cast out of heaven, if Jesus is victorious and all things are under his feet, why does Paul tell us to get ready for battle if Jesus has already won? An illustration that helped me with this is, is from World War II. In the closing days of the war in Europe, you had Russia pressing in towards Germany from the east. The Allies um, were in Africa. They had won victories in Africa and were now pressing through Italy. And then you had the Allies landing on the beaches of Normandy and pressing in from the west. Now, at this point in the war, regardless of whether you're versed in military strategy or not, anyone could tell that the war was over. Checkmate. It's done. It's only a matter of time. The war was won. The Germans didn't have enough men. They didn't have enough resources. They didn't have enough energy to win. It was over. Game over, Hitler. And yet, even though it was obvious to everybody that the Allies had defeated Hitler... Some of the fiercest battles took place in those last days of the war, like the Battle of the Bulge. The war was won by the Allies, but there were still tough battles to be fought. There was still dangerous and deadly conflict going on. It was still intense. The, bat the, the war had been won, but Hitler and the Axis powers stubborn stubbornly refused to concede, and they dug in their heels. It was as if the knowledge of his defeat made Hitler even more stubborn. It reminds me again of Revelation 12. The devil and his angels are overthrown and are defeated by the archangel Michael and his forces and the satanic powers are kicked out of heaven and they're thrown down to earth. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection rendered impotent the accuser of the brethren. It's over. Colossians 2.15 says... He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them. The war's over. The victory's been won. And what's the devil's response? Surrender? No. His response is anger. After the dragon is thrown down in Revelation 12, it says in verse 12, a voice comes from heaven. And the voice says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Even the devil knows it's over. Even the devil knows that he's lost. Even he knows that his time is short, and instead of surrender and conceding, he comes in great anger and wrath, and the rest of Revelation 12 describes the dragon going after the people of God, going after us. Now, now, not, because he has, not because he hasn't been beaten, but because he has been beaten, and he is venting his fury and his anger on the people of God, and he is revolted by the notion that we, the redeemed, are being conformed into the image of the one that has defeated him, the one that he hates the most. 
And remember, through the church, Paul says in Ephesians 3, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it's not just that the devil has been beaten, but his nose is being rubbed in it by God, so to speak. The church is a continuous in your face to the devil that he's done, that he's lost this war, and God is supreme and victorious. Remember Ephesians 4. It says, that says this of Christ's victory. Ephesians 4, 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. What do we have here? We have an image of a king who's won a great battle, and, and as was common in the ancient world, the king would ride into town victorious, and there'd be a victory parade. And part of that parade includes those enemy leaders that have been captured. Those, those enemies are paraded through the streets, humiliated and demonstrated to be inferior to the victorious one. This is essentially what Jesus has done to the devil. So much of what's going on here, guys, is about Christ's exaltation and Satan's humiliation. And the devil hates it, and he's filled with wrath, and he lashes out like a serpent towards Christ's people. And so that brings us right back to Ephesians 6 and the armor of God and our spiritual invisible opponents. But the thing we've got to remember as we move forward in this passage, and we're almost done today, but we're going to delve deeper into it next time, next week. The thing we must remember as we move forward is that it's not like we are called into this cosmic conflict as if the issue is in doubt. It's not that Paul is saying, well, church, God needs your help against the devil, or good might not win in the end. So, so, so let's get really busy, and let's rally to God's side, and let's, let's help to push the forces of light to victory. That's not that at all. Perish the thought. Rather, what's happening is that on this side of the cross, we see that Christ has clearly won the war, and it is our privilege to join our general in the mop-up operation. And just because it's mop-up doesn't mean it's not fierce and intense and dangerous. That's why we need armor. That's why we need a sword. However, we can rest assured that the fate of the universe does not rest on our shoulders. It was never up to us to win this thing in the first place. What needed to be done has already been done by Jesus. Jesus won the war. Jesus gets the credit. Jesus gets the glory. And we get to enjoy the victory with him. Now, next week, God willing, we will look at how the devil comes after us in spiritual warfare. Uh, He doesn't primarily come at us through obviously supernatural manifestations. He doesn't commonly come at us through crazed, demon-possessed people. He doesn't, he doesn't come at us through some of the sensationalistic stuff you may hear about on certain religious TV programs. No, no, no. The, the devil typically is much more subtle than that and much more dangerous than that. He comes after us through what Paul calls in this passage schemes, schemes of the devil. We'll consider some of the methods and schemes that the enemy uses to attack us, and we'll, we'll take a look at the equipment and resources that God has given us. We'll, we'll look piece by piece at the armor of God and, and the sword 
of the Spirit that God has given us, these resources that are available to us. God has won the war, but there are battles that are still to be won or lost, and we'll consider those things and more, God willing, next time. Now, as we, as we close, I think I should remind you that in this con- cosmic conflict, there is no n- neutrality. I know in World War II, some people tried to be neutral, tried to sit on the fences. That's not how it works in this cosmic conflict. There is no neutral side. Either you are a part of the kingdom of light, or you are a part of the kingdom of darkness. Either you are a child of the living God, or you are a slave to sin and Satan. And while it is a sobering thought for us who are believers that the devil is our enemy, how much more terrifying is it for those who are unbelievers whose primary enemy is not the devil, but God? If you do not know Jesus Christ, you need to recognize that you are an enemy of God. And God is an enemy of you. And that is a spiritual war that you will never win. And yet the good news is is that God did something that the devil would never do. God died for his enemies to reconcile lost sinners to himself. Because unlike the devil, God loves his enemies. The scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for people who were already on God's side. He died for those who were slaves to the prince of the power of the air, slaves to sin and bondage to death. And and even though the wages of sin is death and hell, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't have to be an enemy of God. You can be a friend of God. The Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And his name is Jesus. Jesus was perfectly good and perfectly righteous, so you don't have to be. He did the work for you. All you need to do is trust and believe. So I want to urge you today, if you feel the Spirit of God tugging at your heart, if you know you're a sinner worthy of judgment, you know that Christ was judged on the cross already as a, as a substitute for those who call on his name so, so, so that sinners wouldn't have to face the, face the judgment themselves, embrace that. Receive that. The, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You say, is it that simple? Yeah, it is. God loves, loves to extend grace and mercy. And I pray that today you would enter into the winning side in this cosmic war and join the family of God. Now, for those of you who already believe, I I want us to collectively, as Harbin's church, I want us to consider whether or not we are faithfully imaging the truth about God to the world and to the onlooking powers and principalities? Are, are, are we imaging that properly to, in, in respects to how we treat one another in, the, in this church body? Uh, how we treat our wives, how we treat our husbands, how we treat our kids, how we treat our parents? What, what areas are we as a church, are we as individuals, giving the devil a foothold? I'm going to let that question hang. And I'll let you work out the answer with God right now during this response time. Let's pray together. Father, you are the victorious one. You are the glorious one. You are the warrior. You are the king. 
Father, thank you that those of us who are in Christ have nothing to fear. Even though there is this roaming, roaming, roaming lion seeking those whom he may devour, though there is this dragon that comes against the people of God with incredible fury and anger, we have no need to fear. You are supreme. You have disarmed the powers and authorities. You have put them to open shame. Oh, Father, I pray that you would remind us that ultimately our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Some of us in this room do have some intense flesh and blood conflicts going on. There are people in this room maybe who are struggling in their relationship with their spouse. There's people in this room who maybe are struggling with the relationship with their kids or with their, their parents. There are people maybe in this room who are struggling with relationship with a, with a brother or sister in this congregation. Maybe there are people sitting right next to each other even where there's conflict and struggle. Father, help those to deal with those things by remembering that there is a conflict going on behind the scenes. There's a spiritual war that's going on behind the scenes. There, there are demons that are trying to, to muck up relationships because Satan hates it that this church is imaging God. Satan hates it that this, that this church is a, a dis- display and a token of, of God's graciousness and kindness. He hates those sorts of things. He doesn't want us to become more and more like Christ. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would overthrow any demonic forces that are working in the lives of people in this room right now, that they would stand in the strength of the Lord, that these people here would stand in in your strength, and that they would experience the victory that is available in Christ. Help us to armor up. Many things are going to come at at us this week, Father. And I pray that you would help us to view this week in a whole new light after looking at this passage, that there's more going on than just what our eyes see. But help us to trust in you, Father. Our hope is in you. In Jesus' name.